Welcome to another episode of Brain Buzz, where we delve into the fascinating world of neurosciences and brain health. I'm your host, Dr. Kimon Bekelis. And I'm your co-host, Jason Wallen. All right, Jason, this is another episode. Today, we're going to talk about idiopathic intracranial hypertension. That's a mouthful. A mouthful for sure. Another term for this is pseudotumor. So this is a headache syndrome. So a headache syndrome that we actually can fix with uh, surgery. And, uh, that's fantastic. And a lot, like you said in our last podcast, a lot of uh, what we deal with starts with a headache, unfortunately. Right, right. And so, so idiopathic intracranial hypertension is a headache syndrome where folks experience tremendous headaches, pressure headaches. And then in addition to the headache, they can often have visual problems. And um, I want to tell you a little bit about kind of what constitutes idiopathic intracranial hypertension. For short, we call it IIH, right? And, and so what that is, um, is increased pressure inside the brain. And normally all of us have fluids, uh, fluid inside the brain, fluid spaces that are filled with fluid, what we call cerebrospinal fluid, CSF. And uh, when the pressure in that fluid is high, the brain gets compressed, but also the optic nerve gets compressed because that fluid is transmitted into the optic sheath mm -hmm. and this pressure inside that nerve. And, and the nerve can be affected and people can lose vision. And, and so that's kind of the whole, the whole syndrome. And it's a, tough, um, it's a tough syndrome to treat. It's a tough disease. And, uh, you know, I would say in the past, the majority of the treatment had to do with regulating that pressure in the, flu in the fluid, in the CSF either by taking medications like Diamox, which is a diuretic, a water pill, mm. so that you can get that extra fluid out of your body. That has its limitations, of course, and some side effects. And other types of treatments were more invasive and had to do with surgery. You know, putting a shunt or a thin silastic tubing inside the brain, inside the fluid spaces, bringing the fluid underneath the skin all the way into the belly, where it gets reabsorbed and, and eventually removed from the body. And, and so you had these two very different approaches that were not always very effective. And so now we've transitioned to the point where uh, us at the Stroke and Brain Aneurysm Center of Long Island can treat this disease with uh, a needle stick in the groin. Um, and uh, oh, go ahead, sorry. I know, you, we've come a long way. We have come a long way. And the way, the reason we're able to do that is because we understand the disease a lot better. Right, so, so we understand that the way the fluid, the CSF leaves the brain is through our veins. The big veins in the brain, what we call venous sinuses, that then drain into the heart eventually. Uh, and their the other function is to take blood that's brought by the arteries into the brain, take it back into the heart. But also they remove the excess fluid because we constantly produce CSF, they remove part of that fluid. Now, if those veins have a blockage, or what we call technically a stenosis, then the pressure gets backed up, the fluid doesn't drain adequately, more pressure, and you have IIH. And so if you could fix that blockage, which that's what we do, right? Mm -hmm. we're, like I've said before, we're glorified plumbers, we fix blockages in blood vessels. So what we do is we would place a stent in that area and that would allow the fluid to uh, more easily come out of the body, the pressure would go down, vision would be preserved, and the symptoms of the headache would generally go away. So that's kind of how we've transformed the field. And, and I think you and I are seeing a lot of more of these cases now. Yeah, no, we, we always tend to be adding something to our repertoire at the Stroke and Brain Aneurysm Center. And this year, we kind of are leaning more towards this. Right. Um, 
what causes this? So, you know, I, th I think, you know, like I said, in the past, we didn't know exactly what caused it. And hence, we called it idiopathic intracranial hypertension. Idiopathic in medicine is code for we have no idea. <laughs> and, uh, and that's exactly what uh, was going on. We didn't really know. Uh, and now we do. Uh, we understand that it's, it's flow dynamics and it's the plumbing of the brain is deficient in a way and that pressure builds up. Uh, and uh, one of the biggest causes of that is the, ve the venous problem. The vein is not adequately allowing the blood to flow. And uh, when it comes to understanding if there is a problem with the vein, you know, obviously anatomically when we do an angiogram, which, you know, we've talked about before, which is the study we do when we go through the groin mm -hmm. at, with catheters and wires and take pictures of the blood vessels of the brain. But when we see that there is a blockage anatomically, that area looks narrow, that's one visual cue that we might have a fixable problem that causes the IIH. Um, now, to be 100% certain before we put a stent in, what we do is we measure the pressure across that blocked area. So naturally, if there is, if that blockage is significant, you have a pressure gradient, you know, the blood gets backed up. So there's higher pressure uh, before the area of the stenosis, right? And so if that pressure differential, you know, there's different schools of thought, but what we do is if it's over eight millimeters of mercury, then we generally think that a stent would be helpful to decrease that gradient and allow the symptoms to go away. Um, now, you had mentioned an angiogram as a way of, of diagnosing it. Are there other uh, imaging means? Yeah, so the angiogram doesn't really diagnose IIH. What the angiogram does, it helps us understand if there's a fixable cause endovascularly uh, on the venous side. The way you diagnose the disease is actually very different. And it's uh, it's not a single test that will give you that information. It's it's a combination of things. First of all, you have to have the stereotypical headaches, the vision problems, the swelling inside, deep inside the eye, what we call papilledema, well, where, where the optic nerve is swollen. Um, and, uh, and then you need to have high pressure in in the fluid of the brain. Now, the fluid that's inside the brain is also inside our spinal uh, canal. And so the same pressure that's up there is, is down below. And so we can, um, with a lumbar puncture or a spinal tap, we can measure that pressure. We don't have to go straight into the brain to measure the pressure. And we measure the pressure. If the pressure is elevated and you have all the other things kind of falling into place, then most likely what you're dealing with is IIH. Now, there's some diagnostic criteria, obviously, of what you can and cannot have, uh, and, uh, you know, obviously fairly technical, but but that's the baseline of how you diagnose this disease. And IIH tends to be more common in ladies. Uh, it, it tends to also be in more overweight ladies. And so uh, often an initial recommendation that folks would give was weight loss. They would say, you know, lose weight and, and symptoms would improve, which is not necessarily wrong, but it's it's fairly challenging sometimes. So, you know, the, the going the weight loss route might not always be effective or might not be as quick as you want it. So, say somebody's losing vision, you cannot be waiting for a year or two for somebody to lose weight. Um, by that time, vision will be completely lost. So now this minimally invasive treatment that has been developed really allows you to get ahead of the problem um, without without having to wait. Of course. Yeah, because I would think it would be a significant amount of, of weight loss, not, you, not five or 10 pounds. It would be a significant amount. And, and keep in mind, sometimes it wouldn't really 
make that substantial a difference at the end of the day. So, of course, we have to understand the disease better, and it's a multifactorial treatment, right? Um, and the fact that we've kind of shied away a little bit from shunting in these patients is important. Like I said, that piece of tubing that would go from the brain all the way into the belly that has so many problems, frequently malfunctions. It can get infected very frequently. We don't want to go that route if we can avoid it. And, and I'm very happy that now uh, we're able to, to avoid that, that type of treatment option. And, you know, you and I know we've had a lot of very happy patients yes. uh, with this type of treatment. And another thing these folks get um, that I failed to mention before, if the blockage or the stenosis is significant, they might get pulsations in their ear. So what we call pulsatile tinnitus, which of course can be the result of other things, other problems in the artery side, like an aneurysm or a fistula, or tirovenous malformation. Um, but sometimes it's the result of a venous stenosis or a venous blockage and IIH in the same setting. And if that's the case, you can fix that problem at the same time that you're fixing the pressure problem, right? So frequently, you know, I see these patients in the office, they say, my headache is gone, but, you know, I cannot hear my heartbeat anymore, which is amazing. Uh, and and that's that's pretty spectacular. Yeah, so pulsatile tendinitis, um, what exactly is that? That and is... What did a patient, what would they experience? Yeah, so, so pulse synchronous tinnitus is when you can hear ringing in your ear, that's the tinnitus aspect, but you hear it at the same time as your heartbeat. So uh, it's synchronous or at the same time as your heartbeat. Uh, and uh, it's very, very stereotypical. And it's rarely without a cause. When you develop pulse synchronous tinnitus, it's generally some sort of vascular abnormality in the brain. It can be something very benign or something more significant that is going on. And sometimes we can fix it and, you know, um, uh, treat it. Oftentimes, if, for example, somebody doesn't have IAH, but they have venous stenosis causing that problem um, and it doesn't interfere with their life, they might not want to go through the process of getting a stent in the brain. Though. It is. So for some people, you know, we've had, you know, very well, we've had patients that have gone into a full psychotic break because of the intensity of pulse, pulse synchronous tinnitus. Yeah, no, I mean, it's kind of life altering for them. Right, of course. Um, <clears throat> we talked about um, the, the neurological uh, eye exam. Right. So at what point should you be worried if you're having vision issues that it could be this? So, of course, anytime you have vision issues, see your eye doctor, see your ophthalmologist, and they'll be able to determine if the vision problem is from the lens or the other components of the eye or if it's coming from the brain or increased pressure inside the brain. Um, but if you have, if you've been diagnosed with IAH, and you're on Diamox, which is the pill, the, the, the water pill that that uh, that is treating um, that that increased uh, pressure, um, and you're having side effects from the water pill, and you're not very happy with it, and you're it's you know headaches are persistent, and you're starting having visual problems. Now that's a situation where you should be seeing your eye doctor right away, and probably talking to a to a neurosurgeon or a neurointerventionalist uh, for that problem. And I was kind of smiling when you said water pill only because that. Brought me back to my grandmother. That's what she used to be on for different reasons. Right. But she used to call it her water pill when right. I was younger, and I, that's that's all I knew it as. It so. brought you back. Yeah. It did. Uh, but yeah, no. I mean, th these are these are uh, these are very old treatments, and Diamox is a really really old medication, uh, and uh, that comes to show you how kind of the, this all this research and understanding of this disease is fairly recent. 
because um, we have such um, old treatments mm -hmm. that, um, that we've used for it. Uh, but certainly now we have the ability to very, very effectively uh, uh, treat it uh, and, and diagnose it and study it. Uh, and, and it's a good example of multidisciplinary collaboration, right? It's not just a neurointerventionalist, not just a neurosurgeon, a neurologist, an uh, ophthalmologist. So all these different principles are getting together for one patient. And not a single principle can effectively treat this disease. That's pretty amazing. You know, most other diseases that we have in our world, you know, we can take care of by ourselves uh, with the, of course, uh, there's a medical components or integrated neurologist. But this is a really... Uh, a testament to multidisciplinary collaboration and, uh, you know, as, as, you know, building a, a center for IIH, you know, you need a very good neuro-ophthalmology or, you know, an eye doctor that, that deals with the brain uh, partner. You need a good neurologist uh, and, of course, a good neurosurgeon, neurointerventionalist. And there's not a lot of uh, neuro-ophthalmologists around. Uh, not a lot of those folks around. A, a very uh, esoteric field, uh, certainly on Long Island where we practice. That those are there's few and far in between, but they're all excellent, and we've had a great relationship uh, with uh, with all of them. But but you're right; it's a very very tough uh, field to to find a specialist in. So for a patient who is going to get the the, the venous stent as right. a means to treat this, um, what are the the risks? And um, right. if it doesn't work, is there any downside for those who's done? Right. So, so the risks are very small. Uh, contrary to the arterial side, uh, when we're treating a brain aneurysm or an arteriovenous malformation, the risks are a lot higher on the arterial side. Of course, you can cause stroke. You can cause significant deficit uh, and disability or even death if there's a complication. But on the, on the venous side, things are a lot simpler in terms of the risks. Um, of course, there can be clotting in the veins or issues of that nature, but generally speaking, any complication is not as devastating. The biggest um, issue that folks encounter after they receive a venous stent is that they develop a post-stenting headache uh, from stretching that, uh, that vein, uh, and that, that headache goes away typically in a few hours, but at most it would last about a week. Uh, and, and, and that's the most common thing that folks complain about. If it doesn't work, I would say it works in the majority of the cases if you select the patients appropriately, right? If you, um, you, you have to be sure that they have IIH, that there's a gradient or a pressure differential across that blocked area, very similarly to having a river that narrows down and you have the rapids and things are flowing fast, you got to be able to confirm that that's what's going on. And if you've confirmed all that, chance of fixing their problem is extremely high. If you didn't fix their problem, then there's, there's probably some other uh, etiology or something else going on, and uh, it might be a problem with identifying that issue. Uh, and of course, if, if it's still idiopathic intracranial hypertension that's resistant to treatment with a stent, of course, shunting uh, would always be an option. Taking, decreasing the amount of fluid in the brain by just diverting it, uh, bypassing the normal outflow and putting it into the belly. Uh, That's definitely more invasive. Definitely more invasive, a, a lot more things to think about and, and more finicky in terms of its uh, propensity to get infected or malfunction. Um, With either treatment, either being a, a shunt being the, the bigger of the treatments, so to speak, right. and the, the stent, uh, how does follow-up care work? 
So, so the way the way you follow up uh, on these issues is, of course, you have to follow up with your neurosurgeon, your neurointerventionalist. You have to identify um, uh, for a certain period of time. You need to be on blood thinners if you, for example, are getting a stent, mm -hmm. and uh, those are in the form of aspirin and Plavix, typically, or another antiplatelet medication. Uh, depending on surgeon preference or other reasons. Uh, and you, you stay on that for a certain period of time, and then probably you'd stay on a baby aspirin indefinitely. Uh, and, uh, you know, after that, of course, you'll see your neurointerventionalist. They will do um, some imaging studies to make sure that the stent is patent. That can be in the form of an MRV, a CTV, or an angiogram, uh, depending on a few factors. And then... Um, you'll follow up with them. If your symptoms are resolving, you're on a baby aspirin, you don't necessarily need more follow-up. With a shunt, same thing. You know, we uh, perform head CTs uh, to, to see and make sure that the fluid spaces are appropriately sized to make sure that the shunt is in the right spot. And we follow patients for actually a lot longer than if we were to put a stent in and it works, right? Because the shunt can always malfunction. So we have to follow these folks for a very long time. There's no such... I do not foresee a stent for this particular indication malfunctioning or reading um, needing more interventions. And, and I know from just my own personal experience that patients who have received shunts, then there's issues with MRIs. And... Depending on the type of shunt you receive, although there's a lot of shunts right now, even programmable or where the setting is variable, where you can regulate them and their MRI safe. If you have a shunt that can be programmed, a lot of times those are not MRI safe, and or they are safe rather, but they their setting can change. Yeah. And so you have to um, it's a lot more high tune them in, a lot more high maintenance. Yeah. Of course, everything we do on the endovascular side in terms of stents or other devices is MRI compatible and there's no issues with it. And, and, and so you're right. There's, you know, once it's in, it's done. If it's working, there's not much else to worry about. Even if you didn't tell anybody that you had it, it's not going to affect the magnet. Yeah, I mean, it sounds like if I needed this, I would want to stand. <laughs> right, right. All of us, you know, the, the least invasive issue, um, uh, the least invasive treatment would be would be the appropriate one. But but patient selection is key. I cannot overstate that. You know, the, there's a lot of folks with headaches out there. You know, the most common complaint we get in the office is what? Headache. Headache. So, yeah. um, it, you know, if we put a venous stent on everybody, you know, we're going to have a lot of unhappy, a lot of people with a venous stent, and a headache. <laughs> so we're not really going to change the natural history of this disease. So we need to really select these patients very, very, very carefully. If you select those patients carefully, you'll have good outcomes, you'll have happy patients, um, but it's very important. Patient selection, I cannot overstate how significant it is to get the, the facts right when it comes to, to this disease. That's, that's uh, very important to know. Um, I don't have any more questions. This is kind of a straightforward. Very uh, good. Out of the patients that we've treated, um, I think most have been female. I don't remember. Yeah. No, we had we had males. Uh, your memory deceives you. <laughs> uh, we, we've had males uh, with chronic history of IIH, but a lot. See, because we see so many so women chronic, with it, yeah. uh, we, we tend to forget the guys. But there's definitely guys that have it. Uh, it's uncommon. Uh, but in any event, um, you know, if you're having headaches, if you're experiencing symptoms, of course, work with your primary care doctor, work with your neurologist. And if they come up with this diagnosis, then then look into your options. Medical management will be always the first treatment option. But if that, if you're resistant to that, develop other issues, have vision problems, 
then you will likely be redirected to some sort of intervention. Don't be afraid of these interventions uh, in 2023. They are very safe and effective. Uh, and we're very proud that we're able to offer them, of course, at the Stroke and Brain Aneurysm Center uh, of Long Island. Uh, and of course, uh, if you have any questions, if you want to reach out to us, you can always find us on our website, which is www.strokecarelongisland.com. Of course, never forget to subscribe on our YouTube channel, which is at Stroke and Brain Aneurysm Center. Uh, thank you again, and we'll see you in another episode of Brain Buzz. Thank you, Jason. Thank you.